those who love your name. Direct my footsteps according to your word. Let no sin rule over me. Redeem me from the oppression of men, that I may obey your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant, and teach me your decrees. Dreams of tears flow from my eyes, for your law your law is not obeyed. Okay, let's see here. We have a couple things. Let's see. It's a little late, and you probably heard this if you've, the very old famous sermon, but somebody sent this to me, a link to it, and I thought I'd read this, even though it's a day after Christmas. Here's a man who was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another village. He worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never owned a home, never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family. He never went to college. He never put his foot inside a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place he was born. He never did one of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. While still a young man, the tide of popular opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies. He went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed upon a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for the only piece of property he had on earth, his coat. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Nineteen long centuries have come and gone. Obviously, this was written some time ago. And today he is the centerpiece of the human race and a leader of the Column of Progress. I am far within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched, all the navies that were ever built, all the parliaments that have ever sat and all the kings that have ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as has that one solitary life. And that was adapted from a sermon by Dr. James Allen Francis. And then I got lots of cards, you know, from family and friends. And I got one from Patty and Bill, who are missionaries out in mm -hmm. Arizona. And this one was, I don't need to read you the contents. You'll get the picture of it. It says, unto you is born this day. A little picture of a baby's foot. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's perfect. And it says here, a Savior, which is Christ oh, the Lord. that is so cool. It's got a hand and a nail through it. Very nice. Really, really nice. How are they doing? Oh, they're doing all right. They're they're struggling. We'll just keep them in prayer. And, you know, they. Uh, I, she did not tell me if she got a job she was applying for, but they have not worked and they're living off their savings right now. So we will we will pray that they will have something come. She was had something that may be opening up in Arizona, but I just don't know. We just want to continue to pray for Bill and Patty and their their sweet hearts. Their sweet, just gentle hearts. We'll go ahead and. Uh, uh, let's see here. We'll go ahead and read uh, 2 Corinthians 2, chapter 1, verse 1. I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 2, verse 1. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I can do that. Um, maybe, oh, funny how we should back that up because the ending of the last sentence. But anyway, let's just go with that. So. Oh, yeah, we got to pray. Thank you. Thank you. Linda. I got a little emotional looking at that yeah, card. Yeah, uh, Heavenly Father, we certainly thank you for the many blessings that are found in Christ. It just, you think of what went through the minds of the people around him and the, the life that they beheld and the things that they interacted with him. And someday they will be able for all eternity to say, I walked with the Lord and didn't realize the significance of it at that time. 
It's just marvelous. Lord, you came and did marvelous things here on the earth, and you've continued to build a church and do marvelous things ever since. And we just wait for the day when you come back for your people and take us home. And uh, the world will have to make its own choices after that point. And uh, they even have to do that right now. So we leave these things in your capable hands, knowing that you are directing time and the course of human events. And we're just, uh, we're just temporarily here trying to live our lives for you and uh, hopefully learning more about you and bringing glory and honor to you as we go. Lord, we thank you for the chance to do so. And we pray for this class. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What is uh, disturbing about that is that they did take quite a leap of faith oh, yeah. for the Lord. And now it's like, you know, they're just getting beat up on it. So something good will come out of it. Yeah, that's right. Something good will come out of it. Let's hate to see it. Yep. So I've made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. Okay, it's a little shorter, but I determined within myself that I would not come again to you in sorrow. It's the same thing. They just reworded it a bit. Let's see here. As the previous chapter concluded, this is verse 2, 1. Paul said that he had not come to Corinth as previously planned in order to spare them. Building upon that now, at the beginning of this chapter, he says that he determined this within himself or myself. He had changed his plans based on careful forethought, not as a rash and sudden whim. He thought the matter through and made his determination. In this fixed state of mind, he said that he would not come again to you in sorrow. This is not speaking of his sorrow, but the sorrow that would have to be levied upon the Corinthians by his correction of their conduct and doctrine. This will be more completely explained in the next verse. Paul is showing that he had the very best intent or I'm sorry, interest of the Corinthians in mind at all times, and that he cared for them as his own special flock. Life application here. When considering those you fellowship with, always try to remember to have their best in mind. If there is a reason why you should temporarily distance yourself from them, make sure that they understand why. And everybody say hello to Miss Garrett. There we go. The confusion which results from not knowing why people take certain actions can cause personal or even congregational grief. Paul has given us this example in his actions towards the Corinthians, and it is good that we follow suit in it. There you go with that. Short and to the point. Yes. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? That's absolutely right. It's funny. I listened to this as I was driving today, two Corinthians, oh, and yeah, I, I got, oh, what an honor. I got, you know, I left for a mission work on Saturday morning, and I drove up, and I had to stop at the mall, and then I drove up to the scrap all place and dumped off a bunch of scrap metal, and then we went to the projects, and then we got to I uh, Hop, and by the time I got home, I had listened to the whole book of Romans. Oh, what a marvelous trip that was. My goodness. You know, people say, oh, I'll, I'll get to Romans someday. Just get an audio Bible and listen to it. It's, you know, you go through the book of Romans just in a Saturday morning going to the projects. Oh, I mean, there's just no excuse. Whatever. Um, okay, opening. Yeah, and I'm listening to 2 Corinthians right now. It's just, it's marvelous. And here I heard that sometime during the day today. Opening this chapter, Paul noted that concerning his visit to the Corinthians, he had decided that he would not come again to you in sorrow. The reason for this is explained in this verse now. He says, for if I make you sorrowful, well, that relates to the previous verse. If he came in sorrow, meaning with the need to discipline, then they would be filled with sorrow. The I in this is emphatic, and it implies that there were others 
who caused them trouble as well. Thus he is singling himself out to make the point. For if I, emphatic, make you sorrow, then who is he who makes me glad but the one who is made sorrowful by me? The intent of his words is that there existed such a relationship between them. If one side were sorrowful, the other side was there to comfort the other. However, if both sides were sorrowful, then neither could comfort the other. There would only be a mournful, intense gathering. In this question, or I'm sorry, in this, the question is rather abrupt, and it uses a singular, not a plural, number for he and the one. Some see this as the man referred to in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, which he's referring to. He's just a single member of the church, but he has caused the entire congregation to lose their joy. However, what is more likely is that this is referring to the whole collectively. In other words, who is he then? The reason is that this is likely the entire congregation was involved in allowing the offender to stay in the church despite his immoral conduct. This is what Paul will address in order to correct. Because of this, the singular speaks for each individual within the whole. Okay, and we do that in English as well. Paul knew that the entire congregation would mourn over his visit and the needed discipline, and there would have been only sorrow, sorrow for all who were concerned. And because of this, such a visit would ultimately prove to be unproductive. Life application, remember, he's telling them why he didn't come again to them. That's why he's writing these things. Life application, Paul has demonstrated wisdom by allowing, by addressing an issue via letter rather than personally in order to maintain a sense of harmony between the believers. Eventually, a personal visit would be in order. If we can learn from this example, we will be better off than always assuming that a personal face-to-face -face visit is the best option in all circumstances. Because sometimes you have a face-to-face -face visit and it doesn't turn out well. People get angry and then another person gets angry and the next thing you know, all there is is just disharmony and it's just, it doesn't work. And Paul understood that. He said, this is going to turn out to be a, a real bad thing if I go. So I'm telling you why I haven't come. Two, three. I wrote as I did so that when I came, I should not be distressed by those who ought to make me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share for my joy. Oh, man, isn't that wonderful? Did you bring the other one? Bring it here. Um, uh, just come on up here, and then I'm going to let you come and sit in the chair I'm sitting in for a minute. I, I had to leave the house quickly. Somebody called me, and I wasn't ready. So you come sit down here. Just sit right down. Go ahead, right there. I'll be right back, everybody. Hang on. How are you? What does your shirt say? Oh, it's got a tag on it. You still have your tag on. Well, do you got I? Your tag yeah. on your shirt. You got to take your tag oh, off. Right here. Right, right oh. underneath your. Right okay, this will take just one second. He's stripping in church. Did he? I hope they didn't show that on the on the internet. No. Okay. That's why he wanted you to sit there. There. Okay. Now I'm going to sit with you. Okay. Don't get up. Don't get up. Okay. We're going to sit together. Oh, this is, is this that? came from our sister, Lisa, who attends online. She may be with us right now. Hi, Lisa. She gets up early or she stays up late for our classes. This is from Charlie Missy in California. She's got a new design. Oh, okay, okay. And what does it say? Christ. It's the gospel. Yeah, Christ. Christ was buried, buried and, and resurrected. That's the gospel right there. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. So she, Lisa, Lisa in Australia sent these to us oh, via Charlie via. Missy. Okay. So there you go. Yeah. Mm, oh. We want to thank him for that. There you go. Wonderful stuff. That is really, really wonderful. Yeah, they came in and uh, 
I thought if you if you want to have the gospel about as short and concise as you'll ever see it, Charlie Missy. She's got him out there, and that is brilliant. As a matter of fact, I saw it, and I thought I was thinking of the the letter mem in Hebrew, and I thought mem. That I, I don't know what that is, and then I realized when it said that, oh, that's the gospel. Good stuff. Oh, she just does a marvelous job, and I got to tell you what. I don't know what these. They're made of cotton, but they smell so good that it's like the freshest fresh. Okay, we got to get back because uh, I don't know if I do. All, no, my beard will hide it. We got to get back to work. Okay, we're in two three. Yes. Want to read it again? Uh please. I wrote as I did so that when I came, I should not be distressed by those who ought to make me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy. Okay. Let's see here. The first words, and I wrote this very thing to you, could mean one of several things. It could be referring to his change in plans concerning his visit, which is 1 Corinthians 16, verse 7. It could mean the rebukes of his formal, former epistle to expel the incestuous man, or it could even be that he is conveying the thought, I write, instead of I wrote. If the last is correct, it is a form of communication known as an epistolary arist. In essence, what I write to you now has the very object of sparing you a painful visit. This is a common thing you'll see in the epistles, and I try to highlight them when they come out, but uh, that uh, last sentence there was from the pulpit commentary. They were saying that what I write to you now has the very object of sparing you a painful visit. When he writes something, it's an aorist verb, which means it happens at a certain point of time, and it, epistolary simply means it's an epistle. It's an epistle aorist, okay? And so... It's just a technique of writing. It would be like if uh, I was to write something in the future tense, which hasn't happened, you would understand that. He's not writing about something that, okay, it's it's just a, a technique of writing. So there you go with that. Um, whichever is correct, whether it's any of those three options or some other, or even if he intends something different than any of these options, his writing was intended to smooth things over by letter prior to a visit. If he simply came and dictated what was necessary to be done, there would only be sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy. In other words, that's his words, I ought to have joy. Instead of a happy gathering, there would only be sadness. This is what Paul was hoping to avoid by, hoping to avoid by a painful visit or through a painful visit. By following this course of action, he felt that his letter would convey his, as he says, confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. Stated differently, if he maintained his joy, then they would be joyous over that. The intent was that there would be no unhappiness with them because he would come to them in joy. Okay? Life application. It's a little confusing because of the style that he's writing with, but uh, life application. It is true that there are times when a firm hand of discipline is required and that it should be done in person. However, if the same result can be obtained through a written letter and maintain harmony and fellowship between two parties, isn't that a preferred option? Let us always consider how to maintain love and harmony, especially in our relationships with other Christians. All right, two, four. For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. Okay, this is just, it's completely differently written, but it says exactly the same thing. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you, with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. 
There you go. So you see it's a completely different structure, but it conveys the same meaning. All right. In the previous verse, Paul noted that he had written to the Corinthians rather than visited them in order to avoid sorrow in the encounter. Now he shows them the level of sorrow that he already felt simply by writing this letter. That's, the only, that's all he needed to do. He says, out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you. <clears throat> this shows the depth of the sorrow and pain that he possessed for needing to correct their faulty doctrine and tolerance of sin. He says he suffered affliction. This is a strong word indicating tribulation. It is used throughout the New Testament to indicate persecution or severe trials. The word translated as anguished is sinoche. It is used only twice in the New Testament, and it conveys the idea of distress, anguish, or even anxiety. Its only other use, let me take you to it just so you can get the, uh, the context of it, is translated there as distress, which is in the book of Luke, chapter 21, 25. All right, it says, and there will be signs in the sun, in the moon, and in the stars, and on earth distress, that word there of nations with perplexity by the sea and the roaring waves roaring. Okay, so you can see it's, it's a very strong word that he's using there to indicate the state of things. This word, according to Alper Barnes, means properly a holding together or shutting up and then pressure, distress, anguish, and affliction of the heart by which one feels tightened or constrained. Such a pressure as great grief causes at the heart. Understanding this, we can see the true depth of Paul's sorrow for the confrontation that was needed via his pen. It came through, as Paul writes, many tears. But he notes to them that those tears were not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. Having conveyed these words to them, they should now understand the full weight of the words of the previous verse. If he had come under such circumstances, already sorrowful to this extreme state, then when they were made sorrowful through the correction they needed, everyone would be sorrowful. There would be no comfort for anyone at all. Rather such a difficult, rather than such a difficult meaning, he felt it best that he would write, let them absorb his instruction, and then come to them at a later time. And life application. Again, we can learn much from Paul's example. He had the best intent for the individual situation in mind. If a personal encounter would be unproductive or counterproductive, then he knew that a letter would instead be the better choice. Rushing into face-to-face -face discipline is not always the best means of handling a situation. Then they do that in the military as well. You know, you get into trouble in the military, you might get a face-to-face, -face, a dressing down. You might get a, what's called a letter of reprimand, and that usually gets filed away permanently in your record, and that, that'll damage your career very quickly. Dressing down, that means they stand there and they yell at you and they tell you that you've done everything wrong and you're a disgrace and on and on. And that's a dressing down. Anyway, you might get that. I guess the idea behind it is you're standing there at attention, you're being yelled at, and it's as if your clothes were being peeled off of you. You're, you're just naked before them, in other words. I guess that's where the term would come from. That's just a guess. But that doesn't but, go in your file. No, that wouldn't go in your file. You know, they might make a note, but they probably wouldn't. If they're going to dress you down, they probably don't want to permanently harm you. Or they just might want to yell at somebody. You know, you never know. I mean, in the military, nowadays, I'm sure it's soft. I, I, I can't imagine. You remember that, don't you, when you're in the service? Oh, yeah. There you go. I'm, and you didn't have to do anything to get people mad. You could, yeah, you, you know, it just, 
It just depends. You know, especially if you're in basic training, they're going to yell at you for anything. Right. Even yeah. if you haven't done anything, they're going to yell at you. You know, they'll, you, you got to keep the inside of your um, toothpaste cap clean. Okay. If they Stop. open it up and no, yeah. And they, what they'll do is they'll walk up there and they'll squeeze your toothpaste. No, and yeah. And then they'll pull it out and they'll say, and they'll yell at you. Right. It's, it's there to break you down mentally. Oh, I understand and then they that. build you back up and you know, you can't say, I didn't do that because then you're saying that he did it and then that's real trouble. So you just have to stand there and take it. That's the kind of thing you do. Or, you know, like they'll walk over and they'll uh, they'll say, well, let me see your uh, drawer. Is it clean? It could be perfect. And they'll pick it up and they'll, you know, tip it. And then it's not perfect anymore. Look at this as a mess. And you can't say, well, I saw you do that. So it's it's just the way of doing things. Oh, yeah. Well, a lot of people do. A lot of big. Really? It's funny. The bigger the guy, the more they cry. Uh, it, it, that's I'm telling you, the little guys often were the toughest nails wow. that, you know, it just depends. You know, I saw people. What's that? You're used to getting abused. That's right. But I saw people that would go through like the uh, vaccination lines. What they do is they have guys standing on both sides and they keep shooting you all the way down the line. And there were these big guys that would walk through and they just collapse. They, they just drop, you know, and the little guys would just take it, you know, but they say, don't flinch. If you flinch, because it's, well, yeah, no, what it is, is it's not a needle. It's a jet. And if you flinch, it cuts your arm. So yeah, I got one right here. I flinched on one of them anyway. So yeah, it's just, it, it, because it's, it's like having a jet stream going into you. And if you flinch, it's, yeah. So anyway, whatever. We'll get off the military. Let's go to two five. That's a she asked about a dressing down, and we end up with all this. I, well, her face is interested, and I, 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 okay. I didn't know what that meant. There you go. Okay. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent. Not to put it too severely. Okay. Uh, the construction of this verse is such that it can actually have one of at least three varied meanings. Regardless of which it is, Paul intended to convey the overarching thought is that there was an offense. There was grief involved in that offense towards Paul and towards the church, and that there, therefore the entire church was affected. The word anyone here in this verse is singular, and it is most probably referring to the unnamed individual in 1 Corinthians 5. He remains unnamed here. Paul had instructed, and you know, you think about it. Somebody's name in the, the Bible, having done that, would be in there forever. The Lord was, you know, there are times where people's names remain in there forever, like what David did with his sin. But this guy was given mercy right in the word of God by never being named for the actions that he had taken. Anyway, Paul had instructed the church to bring discipline against him due to his immoral actions, which had caused this grief. That occurred, and now there is no strong language against him here and there are no heavy-handed demands being made. Rather, he is carefully and tenderly handling this situation concerning the unnamed offender in order to get it behind them. The next six verses will continue to expand this and what should be done about it. The church had suffered, and now the church needed to be healed of the matter without prolonging it any further. Okay, that's a commentary on the general sense of the verse, but as I said, the construction of the verse will actually give you several different possibilities. And I ran into that. I typed the sermon that we're doing on Sunday uh, nine weeks ago. Okay. And so I set it aside and then I start practicing it and I do the formatting and all that kind of stuff for the pictures, for the video. Anyway, this week I've been practicing it and there was something that's been bothering me for three or four days. It's the construction of two of the verses, which are very, very complicated. And finally, I thought I, I'm not going to not address this 
because I want things to be precise. Okay, I just want them to be precise. There's something that's said in Joshua. There's something that's said here, and they don't reconcile. And nobody would ever get this, but I can't let it go. And so I called Sergio, or I actually emailed him this morning. I said, Sergio, I need you to look at this particular verse, and I, I want to get your opinion about it. And he sat down with Rhoda, and they looked it over very carefully. But he said, I never would have even thought of this. It's just one of those things, that, like this verse, it's so obscure, and how do you approach it? Anyway, we got the answer. And the answer is correct. And there won't, it, not anything that would have affected the contents of the sermon. It's just that you would have one little piece of information that may not have been right if my thought on the Hebrew was incorrect. Okay. And it turned out that it was. But it, it took Sergio and Rhoda, they spent quite a bit of time on it and they had to analyze the chapter. And But that's why it's important. If you can't say something dogmatically, like this verse, there are three possible opinions, then you should either give all three or give a general statement about it and not be dogmatic because you just don't want to we don't want to abuse the word of god is what i'm trying to say you want to be precise you never want to instill in somebody something that is incorrect all right and i'm so glad i had to reprint this is the first time that's ever happened in a sermon i've had to reprint the sermon now three times usually i print it and then i make notes and it's sufficient and then i make the corrections which you guys get but my notes are all over it on sunday morning I've had to reprint it because I've had to redo entire sections of it. There's been a lot of work, but it's a marvelous passage, and I just don't want to have something in there that could ever not be technically correct, even though it doesn't deal with the pictures, which are just, oh, 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 two six. Go ahead. Two six. Okay. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. Okay. This one says, for such a man. Explaining the source and now the intended correction of the matter which caused such grief, Paul brings up the actions that have been taken based on his epistle. If this is referring to the incident in 1 Corinthians 5, and this is all supposition, that that's, I've mentioned that three verses in a row now, if it is, as it, it most probably is, concerning a sexually immoral man, as he had recommended, and let me take you there just so you can see what we're talking about, this very short chapter, I could just read you probably one or two verses, but I might read you the whole. Let me take 1 Corinthians 5, um, 1 Corinthians 5, and yeah, it's short enough. We're just going to read it. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife, and you're puffed up, and if not rather mourned, that he who has done this deed might be taken away from you, from among you. For I indeed, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged, as though I were present, him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, and here it is, deliver such a one to Satan, for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. That's an important verse to remember for something he says about some people to Timothy. He says that, what are their names, um, Hymenus and, anyway, he says um, they've, uh, shipwrecked their, they've shipwrecked their faith, and people will say, see, you can lose your salvation if you shipwrecked your faith. No, it doesn't mean that at all. He uses the exact same term here, handing them over to Satan, and it, it, in other words, it is not a verse that can be used for loss of salvation. It's a verse which confirms eternal salvation. Here's what he says, when you hand somebody over to Satan... It says, um, where was that? Verse 5, uh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. He's already saved. Handing him over to Satan means destruction of his flesh in this life. 
It's getting him out of the congregation and it's getting him out of this world if necessary because he's causing harm to the body, but he will not lose his salvation. Right there, eternal salvation. Okay, verse uh, six, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven, meaning get rid of this guy that is not acting in accord with the truth, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. So Christ is the Passover, and then what does he say in verse 8? Therefore, let us keep the feast. That's not speaking of Passover. That's speaking of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the leaven, unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetous, or with extortioners, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you to not keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, not to even eat with such a person. And here he sums up, for what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. And he finishes up by saying, therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. He's very clear about it, and that's what he's been referring to here, most probably, okay, is 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and all of the grief that he had because of this, and he didn't want to have to make a face-to-face -face confrontation there. You guys handle this, and if you do, then things are going to be smoothed over, and this epistle is here to help you now that we can reconcile, okay? So, that was 1 Corinthians 5, 5. It appears the Corinthians took the action as recommended by Paul, and it actually provided two intended purposes. The first is obvious. It was to serve punishment upon the offender in hopes of him turning from his immorality. In essence, it was intended to bring him back to a right fellowship with the Lord and the church. Secondly, it was to return purity to the church. As he says, purge out the old leaven, for you truly are unleavened. Okay, let us keep the feast. Secondly, it was to return purity back to the church, both by expelling the impure man, as well as to return purity to the hearts of the congregants who had allowed such sexual immorality to occur without any repercussions. And remember, during that epistle, while we were going through it, there were divisions within the congregation and people were reporting on each other because of the things that were going on in there. It was causing not just trouble to the congregation as a whole, but to each person individually, and people were tearing each other apart. And so these things had to take place. And thank goodness they did because we've got instruction in the Word now to guide the churches that have these same type of things. We have a pattern and a model for us to follow after. Whether they took Paul's recommended course of action or whether they modified it, such as meeting in, uh, a meeting informing him that his action would take place if he didn't comply, or whatever else may have occurred, the punishment they decided worked. Because of this, Paul says, the punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man. The word translated here as punishment is only found here in the whole New Testament. It is not a word which carries a heavy punitive penalty, such as eternal punishment, okay? Rather, it is the word epithemia. It means the fitting or appropriate response necessary to turn someone in the right direction. And this is exactly what occurred. A hope of turning this man and the congregation as a whole in the right direction was anticipated, and it is what came about. Because the remedy worked, Paul says, 
that it was sufficient. No more, nothing more was needed. No more action was needed. Life application, the intent of corrective punishment is to, to correct. Exactly. It's to correct, to get them back on line. Okay. So the Bible says, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have been partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. That's Hebrews chapter 12. Should you face such chastening, count it as an honor that you are a child of God and a member of his church. This is especially true in today's world where sexual immorality is so prevalent in the church, which is no church at all. Such people prove that they are not children of God through their wickedness. So when we have a church that is disciplining people, we can say the right things are happening here. We have people that are being chastened. The church is doing what it's supposed to, and it's showing that it really is a church. And it's not just a church that claims to be a church and is doing all these things that these people are doing in the world today, which is just completely disgraceful. Anyway, let's go ahead and next verse. Next verse, which would be seven. Now instead, you want to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Okay. Paul has been exceedingly comforting and delicate in his words towards the offender. He has not called him by his name, and he has not referred to him in a roundabout manner, or he has referred to him in a roundabout manner. For example, the word him in this verse is not in the original, but is inserted by the translators for clarity. In the previous verse, he noted that the punishment which had been meted out by the majority was sufficient. It served its purpose, and the man was reformed. However, what can be inferred is that he is not only reformed, but immensely sorrowful for having brought disgrace upon Christ, the fellowship, and himself, which is exactly the intent of punishment within the church, is to make people want to come back in and not continue in what they're doing. Because of this, Paul says, on the contrary, this is something like on the other hand. In essence, instead of continuing his discipline, you should, on the other hand, now take a new direction. And this new direction is rather, as Paul says, to forgive and comfort him. Where there was discipline, possibly excommunication, which was recommended by Paul. Remember, he said, expel the man, get him out. There should now be reconciliation. Where there was judgment, there should now be forgiveness. And where there was upsetting the brother and the fellowship, there should now be comfort. His reason for this action is clearly stated. He said, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. The word translated as swallowed here is used to indicate being totally consumed, as if gulping down. It is used in Hebrews 11 to indicate the death of the Egyptians who pursued Israel. That's Hebrews 11:29. if you want to go look at that. The whole sea just gulped them down, and that's what he's saying. The sorrow of this person is like that. Therefore, it is unclear if Paul was worried about him being so consumed with grief that he may simply walk away from the faith or even commit suicide. Whatever word had come to him concerning this man, he wanted it known that he held him in great concern and in great love. Life application, it is apparent from this passage that church discipline is to be used in order to bring a person to a point of sorrow and repentance, and then it is to be ended. To continue disciplining someone who has amended his ways can only end in harm 
towards that person. And unfortunately, lots of churches like to do that. They kick them out and the person is sorry. And, you know, um, now here's a perfect example of this. And it's not from a real church. It's from a play church. But um, I had a friend that was into Jehovah's Witnesses for years and he did something and they just completely cut him off. And they said, you, you're done. You, you're not whatever, you know, their crazy thinking is. Um, and uh, so that's, shunning. yeah, shunning, shunning. And that's a good way to have somebody, as I said, they could actually go and kill themselves or something else. Because, you know, not that Job's Witness is a church that anybody should worry about being kicked out of. That's not the point. But um, uh, you understand what I'm saying is that you have to be careful with people. It's, yeah, you, you never know what you're going to drive somebody to. Or maybe not suicide. You may get them to come in and shoot the whole church. You just don't know. You know, I mean, you just don't know people, what they're going to do and how they're going to react. So anyway, there you go. This is also just like forgiveness in general. Forgiveness in general. If, if somebody isn't sorry. That's right. If somebody isn't sorry, they you, you can't forgive somebody that isn't. They, That's you, right. You, you just can't. You know, people say you have to forgive everyone, and that is not taught in Scripture. You know, forgiving everyone just as God in Christ Jesus forgave you. Well, how did God in Christ Jesus forgive you? Changed. You changed, and you came to him, and he said, you're forgiven. And it doesn't happen until then. Okay, it, you'll not find an incidence in the Bible where somebody's forgiven without first asking for repentance. One example in Mark seems to indicate that, but if you combine it with the example in Matthew or Luke, the exact same occurrence, there's actually repentance involved. That's why we have three synoptic gospels and you have to take them as a whole. Okay, it does appear that way in Mark, but it, it is insufficient on its own because it's an account which takes into another one of the two gospels. Other than that, every incident in the Bible is where somebody comes and asks for forgiveness. So there you go. Anyway, go ahead. The reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Okay. Greek scholars debate whether Paul is writing here about his first letter or this letter. The verb is in the aorist tense, and so either is possible. If he is writing about his first letter, he indicates that the instructions for disciplining the man were included in that letter rather than him coming to the church personally to test the obedience of the Corinthians in all things. He had given them a directive to put away from yourselves the evil person. By writing, he would then have been testing their obedience to his authority as an apostle, even when he was separate from them. And that just came to mind. That's a really good lesson. We have to obey Paul's authority, even though he's not here with us. Why? Because he's written out his authority which is the authority of the Lord through him. All scripture is God-breathed, okay? So I just came to mind right now. We, we can't distance ourselves from this word and come out unscathed. It is not possible. We will be harmed in the process. And Paul, his authority extends to every letter that he wrote, every word of every letter that he wrote to this day, okay? It's just the way it is. So there you go. Um, by writing, he would then have been testing their obedience to his authority as an apostle, even when he was separate from them, in essence, it was a test of compliance to his directive. It is easy to be obedient when one in authority is present, but it is less so when that same authority is absent. They have the old saying, when the cat is away, the mice will yes, play. the mice will play. The second opinion is that he is using the known tool, as we saw before, an epistolary aorist in this verse, which concerns the same letter. In essence, for to this end, I also write this letter that I might put you to the test concerning forgiving the man who has been disciplined. 
whether you are obedient in all things, both in punishment and in restoration. So he could be writing about the first letter, or he could be writing about himself in this letter as if it's already done, okay? In the end, the challenge is the same for the Corinthians. Will they be obedient to Paul's directive concerning a very sensitive issue, even though Paul is not personally present? Whichever is the case, Paul is trusting in their faithfulness to his directives as an apostle of Jesus Christ. As this letter has become a part of the Bible, oh, there it is. The exact same premise carries over to each one of us. His words are written under apostolic authority and thus carry the weight of having come directly from the Lord. Are we willing to accept his and thus the Lord's authority and be obedient to his prescriptive writings? Or will we be disobedient to them? How easy it is to go to verses outside of Paul's writings in order to justify disobedience. But it is Paul who is the apostle to the Gentiles during this dispensation. Thus, it is his letters which set the standard for the church age. Let us be willing to accept them and be obedient to them. If you go outside of there, like I say, people take the descriptive accounts in Acts to justify certain doctrines, which Acts never sets the standard for anything. It just simply tells us about the beginning of the church. It describes what happened. There's nothing prescriptive outside of a couple of verses at the beginning where Jesus speaks and that's about it that are prescriptive. Now, there are some prescriptions in Acts which are later overwritten by Paul. Not overwritten, like I'm changing it. He just, bolstered. yeah, he bolstered. He wrote a new and uh, more uh, fuller explanations of those things that were, for example, in Acts chapter 15. Okay, so it was prescriptive at the time, but Paul now goes on and he explains more of that so that we understand why that was given at the time. Okay, but Acts is not. I've said at least a thousand times, and I'll say it at least a thousand more times if the Lord doesn't come, is that almost all bad doctrine, almost all bad doctrine that comes from the variant churches in Christianity comes out of the book of Acts being misused, being used as a prescriptive a book. Almost all bad doctrine of some sort or another. Now, there are some people that obviously people didn't understand dispensations before. That, that wasn't taught because nobody ever thought that Israel was going to be back in the land and blah, blah. And all of a sudden, when we understand Israel has a purpose, there are people that are united. They never were disbanded as a people, even though they're all over the world. And therefore, you know, and now people are starting to go back and sell land in, in the land of Israel and Jews are buying it. And all of a sudden, the, the people realized, you know, the church has been wrong on this. Okay. And so dispensations were suddenly understood for what they really are. And that grew and grew over a period of time in the early to mid-1800s, okay? But before that, churches would rely too heavily maybe on the, the Gospels, thinking that that is instruction. But the problem is with the Gospels being used for church-age doctrine is that now you have contradictions because Paul says something and the Gospels say something, and they can't be reconciled. Like uh, one of the easy ones to remember is pray that you will be counted worthy to stand before the Son of Man. We don't need to do that. The Son of Man has died for our sins, and because of what he has done, we are worthy. We don't need to pray if we're going to be counted worthy. That's a real contradiction in theology. Those things are understandable to us now because of dispensations, and people understand that there's a difference. Jesus was speaking to them under the law, and he had to be crucified first, and even without Israel. We should have been able to figure that out, but it just wasn't well thought out during the church age. And that's fine. There weren't a lot of Bibles and people just taught what they taught. And, you know, I say this also to people, and it's, it's important to understand, is that 
we take people in churches and we say, well, how could they have been so stupid back in the 1500s? And how could they not have seen this? And they, they chastise them when there might have been one Bible in the entire town. Okay. And it might not even been in the language of the people in the town. Okay. They were totally at the mercy. Yeah. Of whoever was standing in the pulpit. Okay. Now we have 15,000 different versions of the Bible. We've got Greek and uh, Hebrew manuscripts right online. We can check any verse within two seconds. And we think every, it was always that way. And it wasn't. Up until just a few years ago, we really didn't have the resources that we now have. We don't have all of the things that can develop the Word of God the way that was just a few years ago. Took hours and hours and hours, literally, of study can be now done in 30 seconds on the internet. Okay, so we have to be careful how we judge the past and how we judge people's theology when all they had was very limited resources and a limited number of hours in a day. And most of them didn't get paid for what they did. They were scholars that just made comments on the Bible and went out and did jobs. So that's just the way it is. So, yeah, just be careful with how you you every hindsight is twenty twenty, but we can't use that. OK, so. Um, uh, we're talking about Paul's authority. His letter set the standard for the church age. Life application. The book of Acts is a, here it is, talking about, it's a descriptive account of the establishment of the church. It is not intended as a tool of instruction for the establishment of doctrine. Rather, Paul's words are given for that purpose. And the epistles, we get instruction from the Hebrews and James and Peter as well. But they are specifically written to the Jewish people. That's right. So there's a purpose for that. Doesn't mean we can't learn from them, but there's a purpose why they were directed to the Jews and specifically why they are placed after Paul's epistles is because it's showing the Jews of the end times in particular need that theology because they've come out of 2,000 years of believing that Jesus was, you know, a Catholic or a Baptist or something. I mean, they you listen to one for Israel. You listen to the the people that have come to Christ that are Jews and the things that they thought about Christianity are so wrong. And they, they admit it after they, uh, they, they grow up and they think that all Jews, uh, Christians hate Jews. They want to kill them and blah, blah, blah. That's all they knew. They had no idea that Jesus was Jewish. They had no idea that the New Testament was written by Jews, to Jews, etc. They have no idea about that. And I listen to these all day, every day, because they put them on uh, Agape Radio in Israel. And these people, hundreds of them, they give their testimonies, and it is as if they had never heard of anything about their Messiah, not a word, right. even in their own scriptures, much less in the New Testament. So it's it's a real eye-opener when you listen to those things. But those letters, epistles towards the end of the Bible that are addressed to the Jewish people are there for a reason. It's because the Jewish people are now coming to the faith and they need that particular theology, which, and I will say this right now, the theology of Paul and the theology of Peter is identical. Yes. It is identical. The addressees are different, but they have one gospel message. It is the same, and they talk about each other and the message all the way through all of their epistles. It is identical. So we don't want to make that uh, error that hyperdispensationalism is correct in any way, shape, or form. It is not. It is a her heretical doctrine. Okay? It is very poor theology. With that, it's, it's okay, so it's like, okay, Paul is the only one that we should listen to because the rest of them are wrong. It's like, okay, so... Let me just ask you one question. John saved? Yeah. Hello. Was Peter saved? Right. Was James saved? It's like, and if not, what a 
Horrible guy. Yeah. Like, you know, what are their books doing in the Bible if they right, aren't? It's just right. the whole thing is just, it's convoluted and it's very poor theology. Scary. But yeah. Anyhow. All right. Paul's words are given for the purpose of church age doctrine, Gentile led church age doctrine. If something occurs in Acts which seems contrary to one of Paul's directives, there's a reason for it. We see that I did that on the board many times, especially during the book of Acts. The variation then is not for doctrinal use but to show how the church was established. Once it was, we are to prefer Paul's commands over the narrative found in Acts. Taking everything in its intended context will keep the congregation from confusion and faulty doctrine. And you just remember the five key rules of theology. What is it prescriptive, is it descriptive, and context, context, context. You get the context right, you'll normally have it correct, then you ask yourself in that context, is this prescribing something or is it merely describing something? That'll take care of almost 99.9% .9 of your theological error. Okay, 210. If you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what have I forgiven? If there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. Okay, this one says it just the opposite, for your sakes in the presence of Christ. So they there just turn the sentence around so they're not plagiarizing each other. All right, Paul is speaking in a rather general way here concerning forgiveness of an offender, though it is vague and roundabout. He is certainly referring to the person mentioned in verses 3 through 8. In other words, the general principle can be applied to the specific individual. He is affirming the right of the congregation to forgive an offense and that he will, in turn, support their decision. In essence, he is saying, I have confidence in you, to make the right decision in such cases, and I am supportive of your decision when it is made. All right? To shore up this thought, he adds, for if indeed, indeed, if I, read that again, for if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes. His words are in the past tense, stating as an accomplished decision his support for what was or will be decided upon by the church. It was for their sake that his forgiveness was granted. He is showing solidarity with them in what they have resolved concerning the particular matter. To finish this thought, he adds that it was in the presence of Christ. The Greek literally reads in the face of Christ. It is as if Christ was literally present and watching what occurred. His words then are intended for those in Corinth to understand that I have acted with Christ watching me to whom I am accountable. The whole verse speaks of a process which is intended to bring reconciliation, ensure harmony, and yet uphold the strictest standards of integrity, knowing that the Lord has his eye on the situation. Life application, one aspect of the Christian life that should be remembered is that we are in the presence of the Lord always. That's right, not sometimes. Our words, our actions, our interactions and so on, are all known to him. Someday, someday, we will stand before him and give an account of our lives. Judgment is coming, so let us act as if we believe it now. But the good news is that our judgment in Christ is not for salvation or condemnation, but for rewards and losses. Let us work for the former so that we do not receive the latter. One thing we hear from atheists or supposed atheists and these people that want to fight against Christianity or religion in general is that religion is simply there to be a bondage over people. 
that's to keep them under control. Karl Marx had that idea about religion. If that was true, I would not be sitting here saying that to saved believers. Everybody get the, the premise there? We're putting the same bondage that they supposedly say we're under on ourselves. It's not like I'm saying, you need to do this and you need to do this and you need to do this because God is always watching. I'm saying we need to do this. This is something that we need to do as saved believers. If I was out there telling the world, oh, you're going to go to hell if you don't accept Jesus, and that's all I did, maybe they could make an argument for that. They could say, okay, Charlie just wants a bigger congregation, or he just wants people to feel bad that they're going to go to hell unless they do what he says. Then cults will do that. But when we impose these standards on ourselves, then it obviously means that we are sincere about this. If you know, Now, I could be lying to all of you right now. I could not maybe care a bit. I might go home and say, gee, I had a great class today and, you know, I'm whatever, got Christmas cookies from Linda and, you know, whatever. But if I'm being sincere in my own heart and I'm saying this about myself, then you know that the Christian message is true. It's not something that we need to worry about. God is watching. He's watching everything you do, but everything I do as well. And Paul said that about himself. He said that about himself. Hypocrisy. That's what needs not to be in the... That's right. No hypocrisy. That's exactly right. Okay, 2.11. In order that Satan might not outwit us, but we are not unaware of his schemes. His schemes, that bad guy. Okay, you know, somebody asked me such an interesting question today. I, I, or yesterday, I answered it, and then he responded today. He said, my dad asked me, and I want to know. Now, I don't want to get this wrong. He said, um, in Job, in Job, Satan controlled the weather. Remember that uh, at the beginning, you know, yeah, the, he said, uh, um, I, I allow you to do these things to Job. And so he went out and there was a, a storm that destroyed the uh, family, destroyed the cows and destroyed the servants. Okay, so Satan is behind this weather. Okay. And his question was, does Satan still do that today? And I thought, you know, I can't think of one instance in the Bible where it says that Satan does that. But it does say that he did it in Job. And so then I thought, oh, well. Yes, it must be, because what happens in chapter 2 of Job? He afflicts the person's body, his own body. He says, um, it, it, this was just an interesting question, and I, you know, I said, if I think of something more, I don't want to give you a definitive answer, but this is what I think, because I don't want to be dogmatic about something and be wrong later. But he afflicted Job's body. Right. Satan gave, or the Lord gave Satan the authority to afflict Job's body. What does Paul say? Yeah, but not kill him. But what does Paul say about his own affliction? A messenger from Satan. I asked for it to be taken away three times. And the Lord's response was, my grace is sufficient for you. It was a messenger from Satan. In other words, if Satan had the authority to afflict Job's body, and he had the authority to afflict Paul's body, then we can logically assume that chapter one is no different than chapter two, because he had to get permission to affect the weather. And so my, my thought on this, this is just, this isn't to make doctrine on, but my thought is that, yes, Satan probably is allowed to take control of the weather even today, okay? And so what? Because he's still under the authority of the Lord, right? And so my answer to him was, it doesn't matter if the Satan can send something. He wants to test the people of the Philippines with a, a hurricane, okay? If the Lord allows it, the Lord allowed it. It doesn't make any difference. Okay, yes. but the answer is probably yes. That's all. That's he just asked a philosophical question, and I gave a philosophical answer. It's not doctrine. Okay, don't don't right. no, no, 
Yeah. Don't stress over it. Nobody's in there, but, but yeah. it's a fallen world. That's right. In a fallen right. world, everything right. is not quite working. Up everything to stuff. is not working to stuff. But at times, Satan may challenge the Lord over a people, mm -hmm. the obedience of a people, the Philippines, right? Mm -hmm. They you, And the Philippines, there's lots of people that love Jesus, okay? It's a very Catholic nation, too, but there's a lot of people that love Jesus. And he may say, you know, I want to sift you, just as Jesus said to Peter, Satan will want to sift you, okay? So it was a philosophical question. Can he affect the weather today? And I would say, why not? That would be my answer. But in the end, nothing happens apart from the will of God. No thing. And so that was my comforting assurance to him that even if it's true and somebody wants to go making goofy YouTube videos about Satan having control over the weather, they have to, at the end, qualify it and say that the Lord is in control of all things anyway. And they won't because people like to tingle people's ears. And that's what will come up, that type of a question, if you don't tell them at the end. I'm not saying this guy. I'm saying people in general. They'll do these videos and they'll say, well, he had authority here, so he must have authority here. Well, if that's the case, it's still under the authority of the Lord, always. Nothing happens apart from the providence of God. Okay, so we're in 2.11. Did you read it? No. I'm pretty sure I did. Yeah. Well, let's read it again. In order that Satan oh. might not outwit us. That's right. For we are not unaware of his schemes. Of his devices or schemes, yes. Okay, that's why I got into that yeah. is because Satan yeah. was mentioned, and it was just a great question. You know, there are questions that people ask, and... I have to stop and I have to think about it. You know, some things you just, oh, I know the answer to that because I've been asked it 400 times. I've never been asked that question before. Yeah, well, it was. Okay, so 2.11, Paul has been addressing forgiveness and now he gives a very important reason for it, lest Satan should take advantage of us. Here he gives the devil's proper name, Satan. Anybody know what it means? Adversary, okay, or an accuser or even enemy, all right? In Hebrew, it's ha-satan, the Satan. If you see the word Satan in the Old Testament, it doesn't always refer to, to Satan. It can just simply be an accuser. I saw an accuser over there. I saw a Satan over there. But Ha-Satan, the Satan, would be the devil. Okay, Ha is the word the. Okay, that's right. So if you see that in the Old Testament, it is probably speaking of Satan, Ha-Satan. The devil, Satan, is an adversary. He is an accuser and an enemy of both God and man. Paul had first recommended that the Corinthians, as he said, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That was his recommendation, okay? That his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. That's 1 Corinthians 5.5. 5. However, because of the circumstances, he was now taking the avenue of forgiving and reconciliation. This path is taken so lest Satan should take advantage of us. The verb for take advantage of indicates to overreach. In essence, it is a game against the tempter in which the souls of men are at once the counters and the stake. That is Charles Ellicott's take on that. A spiritual match of wits and strategy was being waged, and Paul wanted to ensure that the devil would not succeed in his efforts to harm the souls of either the man in particular or the congregation in general. His reason for this is given for we are not ignorant of his devices. Paul had a great amount of experience in waging this battle against the devil. In Ephesians 6, he writes concerning the spiritual warfare around us and specifically the wiles of the devil. That's verse 11 of Ephesians 6. He also notes later in this letter that, a, here it is, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan. That's 2 Corinthians 12, 7. We'll be there probably next week. In writing to the Thessalonians, it won't be next week, okay? In writing to the Thessalonians, he notes that Satan 
actually hindered his way in visiting them. So Satan can take advantage of the situation, but in the end, God always knows what's coming. He will never allow it to do anything that will not meet his purposes, okay? In these and other instances, it is apparent that Paul knew well that Satan is a powerful adversary and that he needed to stay ahead of him always. Life application, the spiritual battle is real. And we need to be aware of it, keeping in the word, staying close to God in prayer, and remaining united to other believers in close fellowship are all ways that this battle can be effectively handled and won. I was thinking about that today, you know, that uh, uh, we have every opportunity in this world to come to know Jesus, to fellowship with Jesus, to overcome the troubles in our lives. and. I, I just, I, my heart was mourning over it. The people of the world just don't want to do this. We would find any reason at all to not go to church. We've got football games, we've got baseball games, and we've got, i got a family outing, and I've got this and that. There's, there's 10 million things that will draw us away from going to church or to attending Bible study. And thank goodness we have Bible study on the internet nowadays. But even then, if you're listening, you can get distracted, you know? And so... Uh, maybe people with podcasts get less distracted. I don't know, because you got them in your ears. And, I, and, you know, I don't know. But in the end, we all are going to stand before Jesus, and we all have to make an account of the level of priority that we made him. And the only way that we can really make him a priority is by knowing him. If we don't know him, then what we are doing, the actions we're taking out in the world saying this is for Jesus may not actually be for Jesus. You understand why I'm saying? If the word doesn't condone something and we think that it's good, it doesn't mean that it's good. We have to be doing it for the Lord. It has to be proper and we have to be pursuing him. And the only way that we can really do that is through the word he has given. I can't think of anything more important in our life than that. And yet we just throw that opportunity away. So, um, 12, verse 12. Now, when I went to Troas, preached the gospel of Christ, found that the Lord had opened a door for me. Okay, door is open. Paul now returns to the consequences, or I'm sorry, the sequence of events that he left off with in verse 4. Verses 5 through 11 were an insert thought which have now been completed. He had determined to not go directly to Corinth for the reasons previously stated. On his journey to Macedonia, he came to Troas, which was on the route between Ephesus and Macedonia. On the way, he says, when I came to Troas, there is an article in front of Troas in the Greek, which leads scholars to think that he is referring to the general area and not specifically the city, the Troas. I, you know, this is one of the things that I find the most debilitating when I study the Bible and I find out that there is an article in front of something that is not included in the translation. Oh. That uh, I can't tell you how that affects me when it says in the Old Testament, like 300 times out of 3,000 times that the word God is used, 300 of them will say, Ha Elohim, the God. And there's a reason why that's there. And the whole context of the passage changes when you know that it says the God. And all the, tomorrow, or I'm sorry, Sunday, this is the problem that I had with verses 6 and 8 of Numbers chapter 36, was they have inserted articles which are not in the original. And without especially with this Bible, because they take it and italicize it, without italicizing that, saying this isn't in the original, you really don't know what the word is saying at all. Okay, now there are others in this passage. In 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, Numbers chapter 36, the very first sentence 
has an article in the wrong place. Okay, and it changes the intent of the whole thing, but it doesn't change the doctrine. It just changes your perception of what's being said. But when you get to verses six and eight, I'm telling you what, they are very confusing verses. And when I went to Sergio on them, it took some time to make sure that what I had assumed was correct was correct. Because if they wasn't, then all I would do during the sermon is say, I think, and I hate doing that. I hate saying I think. I want you to have something without me thinking. I want you to have something that this is what this says, and here is justification for that. Because the entire passage hinges sometimes on one or two very basic words that are not in the Bible, or I'm sorry, in the translation of the Bible that you're reading. So here we have a article in front of Troas, which is not mentioned. And if people knew that, they would just read it differently. Why did it say that? And it would spur people to think. It's just one of my pet peeves is this is the word of God. We have to make sure that we read lots of translations. I say it again and again because you don't know what you're getting, okay? Um, it's a general area of the city. There in that general area, he notes that concerning Christ's gospel, a door was opened to me by the Lord. This terminology is quite similar to the words he used concerning Ephesus in 1 Corinthians 16, 8, 9. I went through that with you guys, all the different doors when it was mentioned, but I'll take you there really quickly, 16. But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Okay? So, as this journey was from Ephesus to Macedonia via Troas, it becomes apparent through his use of this same term in such close intervals that the Lord was carefully directing his steps for the furtherance of his gospel. There's a door. There's a door. He, he's having doors opened as he goes, and so it's like He's being led. The Lord is saying, oh, I don't want you to go here, but I want you to go over here. And so Paul is just simply being obedient by following where the Lord has told him to go. Okay, so in this, we can see that even the anguish of the situation at Corinth was used to further the gospel elsewhere. Nothing happens by chance, and all things are being directed by the infinitely wise Lord. And despite this, there will be a conflict in Paul that will cause a change of plans in his work in Troas. This will be seen in the coming verse. Life application. At those times when it seems that the Lord isn't there with you, he is. He may be working on something entirely unexpected by you, so trust that he truly will never leave you nor forsake you. And we know that's true with Bill and Patty out in Arizona right now. They're going through some difficult times. They're, you know, what are you doing, Lord? But he's leading them. He's got a purpose for them being out there. And whatever it is, they will turn around and they will say, oh, I see it now. As long as they cling to the Lord, they don't abandon him or each other. I told him, you know, this was my uh, Christmas message to him. I said, you know, when you have financial troubles, it causes marital distress. That's just the way it is. You know, and they're a young couple, married couple as far as that goes. And you have to cling to each other not fight each other when times like that come. So, you know, just keep them in prayer because they are some really wonderful people. Yep. They are very, very marvelous people. Top of the drawer. Anyway, uh, 2.13. I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. Macedonia. Okay, in the previous verse, Paul mentioned his arrival in Troas for the purpose of transmitting the gospel. While there, he noted that a door was opened to me by the Lord. However, and despite this, he says he had no rest in his spirit. The thing that usually brought him the greatest joy was telling others the news of Christ. 
He worked tirelessly in this and took every advantage of it. And yet, even with the door wide open before him to walk through and share the news, he was in anguish to hear about the state of affairs in Corinth. You can see how much it needled him. He then notes the reason behind the anguish. It was because I did not find Titus, my brother. It is apparent that the two had intended to meet up and either he was late in arriving, Titus was late in arriving, or circumstances had changed Titus' original plans. It was Titus who would carry news about the affairs at Corinth, but for whatever reason, he now had no way of hearing how things had transpired there, and so he left this great field of harvest at Troas in order to hopefully find Titus in Macedonia. Now think of this. You've got somebody that is either walking or taking a boat somewhere, and he says, I'm going to meet you here on this day at this time, okay? He's not there. And so he says, I went to Macedonia to look for him. He's going to, it would be like me saying, okay, I didn't find Linda. I was looking for him. I, Jim told me to go find her and I couldn't find her down at uh, Sarasota Square Mall. So I drove to Tampa and I started looking for her. That's the equivalent of that. Think of it. You know, I mean, it's just, I don't know how they did it. You know, I, I could tell you a funny story about the day that we adopted our son. It was very similar to that. I, I won't tell you because it'd take too long, but it, a good story. It, it's a very good story about one phone call after another from my wife going from one train station to another looking for somebody that was supposed to meet her. And she said, well, I'm going to this train station now. And I'm like, why would you do that? You say you were going to meet, well, he's not here. And she, this happened like eight times and they did meet, but I never in all these years have gotten an understanding of what transpired that day. But there was just, I'm going here, I'm going there. Why would you do that? But that's what Paul's doing, and it seemed to work. So anyway, company, yeah, there you go. Let's see here. Um, uh, he's hopefully going to find him in Macedonia. The entire thought is one which shows the immense care that Paul felt for this church, which he was so closely tied to. It was a burden that he felt for all of his children churches, so much so that he almost couldn't endure not knowing how they were faring in their lives and doctrine. The same general sentiment is expressed now towards Corinth as that which is seen in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, where Paul says this, 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 5, For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you, and our labor might be in vain. Well, he used a different word for Satan by speaking about exactly the same thing in the same type of context. He's absolutely beside himself in love for his churches and these people that he had led to Christ, and now he wanted to know that they were maturing in Christ. We are shown in these letters of Paul that sometimes correcting doctrine of current believers is to be considered on the same level as evangelizing new ones. The importance of correct doctrine for believers is because if they get off course— then those whom they evangelize will never come to know the truth of the gospel message. Paul felt this burden in the most intense way. Life application, there are only so, so many hours in a day, and there are only so many avenues that we can pursue with this small amount of time that we have been given. Let us make sound choices as to where we will focus our attention, redeeming the time as best we can. 14. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ, and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of Him. Okay, it's completely rewritten on this one, but it says the same thing, so we'll stick with that. Okay, 214. We have uh, Paul, in what is not uncommon in his writings, breaks into a shout of joy as he considers the situation. 
he lets out a resounding, now thanks be to God. This is based on several key points which came to a confluence in his life at the same time. First, he had finally met up with Titus. Second, because he heard the good news from Titus about the positive status of the Corinthian church. And third, he was overwhelmed with the great abundance that came about from his visit to the Macedonian churches concerning gift for the church in Jerusalem. These points won't be seen until chapters 7 and 8, which he will go into great detail over, but Paul hints on them now before addressing many important issues. He will return to these thoughts, though, and give them in detail at that time. For these things, he sent his thanks, as he says, to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ. The word for leads us in triumph is triambeuo. It is used only one other time in the New Testament in Colossians 2.15, and it means properly to display triumph openly, publicly exalting the victor who leads a victory procession and putting the conquered on display. So you can see he's put Satan on display. He's, Satan is conquered here. Scholars and translators vary on how to render this. It could be either something like causes us to triumph in Christ or leads us in triumph in Christ. The two are vastly different, and yet either could be deduced from the surrounding text. However, the fact that the surrounding issues were handled by the Lord, even directed by him, it would make sense to say that it is he who leads us in triumph. And because of this, it is he, Christ, who through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge and power in every place. As he leads us in triumph, our lives are used to diffuse what we know of him to others. The idea of fragrance is used by Paul elsewhere to indicate the offering of Christ himself for us. That's found in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, and of a gift that was sent to Paul in Philippians 4, verse 18. The intent of this fragrance is that it permeates all things and is pleasing in and of itself. Therefore, like incense, the knowledge and power of Christ is diffused through the disciples of Christ to the glory of God. Before we go on, I'll say that that fragrance is actually referred to in Numbers 36. Okay, the very final verse, the very final verse of Numbers. It will, I will tie it to that right there, that idea of the fragrance. Okay, so keep that uh, in mind and on Saturday we'll talk about it. Sunday. Sunday. What did I say? Well, we could talk about it. On we could talk about. We will talk about it on Saturday at the mission work, and then we'll talk about it at church on Sunday. Yes. Okay. Two fifteen. Oh wait. Life application. Paul takes time to weave the difficulties of his life into the larger pictures of God's obvious hand in them by bringing them together, not for greater difficulty, for but for overall benefit. If we can look over, if we can overlook the small difficulties in our lives and see how they all actually turn out for a greater benefit, then we can truly rest in the fact that God has it all under control. Let us learn from the Bible that there is a good end and God is working towards it even through our failings, faults, and trials. And I think we have time for another one, so go ahead. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. Oh. In the previous verse, Paul spoke of himself and the other ministers of Christ, saying that he, as through us, diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. Building upon that, he now states that we 
are the to God the fragrance of Christ. Their ministry is what diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. God has chosen to use fallible humans to carry the infallible message of his son to the people of the world. Think about that. He's using fallible humans to carry the message of his infallible son to the people of the world. That's a big responsibility. In this, the fragrance goes forth as God purposes. The imagery is that of the streets of Rome after a triumph had been realized for the empire. The air would be filled with the fragrance of incense as the victors proceeded through the streets. However, there is another part of the scene that the world saw. Not only would the victors walk in their uniforms with their heads held high, but following them would be the vanquished foes. They would be captives taken as slaves or for display in the Colosseum where they would be put to death. The same fragrance would go forth to both, but the effect upon them would be completely different in their reception. This fragrance of Christ then diffuses, as Paul says, among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Think of this. We're out there giving the gospel, right? Somebody's out on the street giving the gospel, and there are people that accept it, and that's the fragrance of Christ. And there are people that reject it, and they smell the same fragrance, and yet it has a completely different meaning for them. They will bear that smell as they're cast into the lake of fire, right? In Paul's words is an inescapable truth. Some will be saved and some will perish. The gospel is the standard by which this will come about. To those who receive Christ, they will be the victors, and to them the sweet fragrance of that life and salvation will be theirs. Those who reject Christ will be vanquished. Among them, that sweet fragrance will be a testimony against them that death, banishment from the presence of God, and eternal punishment will be the result. Life application in today's pluralistic world, people teach that there are many ways to God and that salvation can mean a host of things. Instead of following what God has said in his word, they make stuff up that sounds good and they run with it. But such a message has no true pleasing fragrance. The incense has been tainted with untruth and it only carries the smell of death. There is but one way to be saved and that is through Jesus Christ and that salvation carries with it an ultimate truth, reconciliation with God by the putting away of sin. There's no other way. So accept the gospel, be saved, and be a victor through the work of Christ. And guess what? We have time even for one more. Yes. To the one, we are the smell of death. To the other, the fragrance of life. And who is equal to such a task? Okay. And this one says, and who is sufficient? For these things. A task is singular, things is plural. A little difference there. Paul just noted that the apostles, meaning the message they carried, are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Expanding on that, he gives a contrast to how this fragrance is received. He says that to the one we are the aroma of death leading to death. In Greek, it reads ek thanato is thanaton, from death to death. The state of the unregenerate is already death. That is because the wages of sin is death and all have sinned. Those who reject the gospel message do so from death to death. There can be no life for someone who is already dead and who has chosen the path of death by rejecting Christ. Once again, free will is involved in the process. Therefore, Paul equates the fragrant message of Christ as the aroma which a prisoner headed to death would smell. 
As Vincent's Word Studies notes, he says, some find here an allusion to a revolting feature of the Roman triumph. Just as the procession was ascending the Capitoline Hill, some of the captive chiefs were taken into the adjoining prison and put to death. Thus, the sweet odors which to the victor, Amarius or Julius Caesar, and to the specters were a symbol of glory and success and happiness, happiness were to the wretched victims a jergutha or a versengatorix, whatever that is, an odor of death. So these people, they had all this smell out there and they would put them to death smelling the same smell that the victors were smelling and it meant something different to them. <laughs> kind of horrid. The same type of terminology has been noted among the rabbis as well. It is obviously a, a universally understood concept. People of all cultures know that death is the end. Most cultures believe in an afterlife that must somehow be merited. Therefore, if the way of merit is not attained, then there's only death leading to death. Thankfully for the Christian, there is an absolute assurance which is found nowhere else. It is to the other the aroma of life leading to life. For the one who reaches out and receives the fragrant aroma of the gospel message, it is ek zoes is zoen, from life to life. The source of life is found in the gospel message which centers on Jesus Christ. When that life is received in an inanimate, oh, I'm sorry, in an animated being, he moves to the life which is true life. The spiritual reconnection to God is made and eternal life is granted. It is more than a hope, but it is rather a certain, present, and guaranteed reality. Paul finishes the verse with sobering words, and who is sufficient for these things? He asks this rhetorically as a way of showing the immense responsibility laid upon the one who shares the gospel message. It is a two-edged sword which will lead some to life and some to death. The words when transmitted will lead to either eternal life or eternal damnation. Who would take such a responsibility lightly? Who would even be willing to speak such words knowing what could be the final result? Paul implies here that it is the grace of God alone which enabled him to pronounce the eternal destiny deciding words. Life application, we have all been asked to share the message of Christ either in word or in action as our lives are to be a gospel message in and of themselves. Let us walk soberly and consider that when we fail to responsibly reflect Christ to others, it may be to them the fragrance of death leading to death. How great is our responsibility then? Well, we're not going to finish the chapter. I thought we might finish a whole chapter today, but that is not going to happen. Yes. Grace thought he said that, she said that she was up for air because she and her daughter Probably from Virginia to Okay. We will pray for that right now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, chance to come to your word. 2 Corinthians is turning out to be a wonderful book, and uh, we pray that we'll just continue to uh, stir our souls and our hearts to want to get out there and share the message with others and to be responsible with our lives and to act in a way which is responsible so that they will see Jesus in us and want Jesus, and then we can open our mouths and lead them to Jesus. So may that be so. And we have a prayer that Elaine and her daughter are traveling and they uh, want to travel safely. They tend to drive instead of fly. And uh, that's a, a tense drive at this time of year, especially with all the tourists coming down. So we would pray for safety for them. 
And Lord, we thank you for the chance to be in your presence and to just lift up people and their needs and uh, many desires and uh, the things that are lacking in their lives and uh, that you will fill them up. And so may that be so. And Lord, we have a small list of people that is gathered so far that have uh, particular people that are named in that list that do not know Jesus. And right now we'd like to lift them up and uh, we'll get that letter uh, or that list uh, printed out and we'll uh, give some names here in in uh, your presence soon. But until then, please uh, continue to uh, respond to the prayers that are set forth for these people that do not know Jesus who need to know Jesus. And may it be so that even this week, some of them will come to a saving knowledge of Christ. And we pray this in his beautiful name. Amen. Okay, let's see. Let me put this here. And let's put this here. The last time this year. Yeah, it's the yes, last it time this year. Yes, it is. Break. We'll go to break. <laughs>